Father, I thank you for this opportunity to proclaim your word. Um, it is not without fear and trembling. Um, I cannot do this on my own. But you promised, Lord, you promised wherever we speak your word, your spirit would accompany that. And so we ask now that it would accompany us as we lend our ears and our minds and our hearts to the word of God. That it would capture us, that it would grip us. That we would be challenged in our own life. If sin is there, we would repent of that, Lord. We would turn from that. If there has been a lack of zeal, Lord, for you, you would rekindle that fire as we look at the word of God today. Lord, we ask that your word would not return void just as you promised, but it would plant a beautiful harvest in our hearts, Lord. And that fruit would be there for all to enjoy you, Lord. Lord, we do remember those who are at home, even now watching, uh, there for many reasons, but some just can't get out anymore, Lord, as Pastor Gary prayed this morning, Lord. And we, we ask that you would comfort them and take them through this season of life, Lord. Many of them know you and long to be at home with you, Lord. And so we pray that you'd give them patience and give them ministry to those who minister to them, Lord. Lord, for others who are going into procedures or uh, sick uh, from something or other, Lord, please heal them quickly and return them to us, Lord. Father, now hear your word preached, Lord. May this glorify and magnify you. In Jesus' name, amen. This week I received a quote, or at least remembered this quote, and I'd, remem- I'd put it down on a piece of paper somewhere, and then I began to try to follow up why I really enjoyed this quote or it was meaningful to me. The quote came from Thomas Brooke, he, Brooks, he was a Puritan preacher in England um, during the 1600s. He's a fascinating man. Uh, many men, when you research them, there's lots of people who write biographies on them or so forth. Uh, Thomas Brooks doesn't have a lot written about him particularly. What's written a lot about is what he had to say, what he preached on. And he was a true man of the gospel, and he loved God's word. And so most of what we have is recorded by him. He suffered through quite a few different plagues or pandemics that were raging in Europe during the 1500s and 1600s. He was born in the early 1600s, started to preach about 1640, preached all the way to his death in 1680. He particularly hit a a very difficult plague during the middle of his ministry, a pandemic. Um, It was in 1665, and it was one of the last plagues that really hit Europe in that century, in that area. It killed over 100,000 Londoners. 20% of London died. Um, It was an amazing, very, very difficult time uh, for those people in London. And, of course, uh, Mr. Brooks was preaching right in the middle of that. I tracked this quote down to that series in that area of when he said this. And this is, this is a quote, and I, I just hope it challenges you, encourages you in some ways. He said this, sin is the plague. That caught my attention right away. Because we're all about pandemics and viruses and keep your distance and do all this stuff. But here, this man watching 20% of his population die, many in his own church, said, sin is the plague, yea, the greatest and most infectious plague in the world. And yet, ah, how few are there that tremble at it, that keep at a distance from it. <laughs> oh, how, 
how important that is and how perfect timing it is. I mean, uh, you can go to Publix today and cough and people run away from you down the aisles, you know, and you sneeze. Uh, There's such great fear among people today. And in some cases, rightly so. But yet, when we think of sin, we, we don't hide from it. We don't sequester ourselves away. Often, we often don't even handle it. We ignore it as though it's not even in our life or in our families or in our church or in our country. And yet, as Mr. Brooks said, it is the most infectious plague in the world. It'll kill you and send you to hell. Well, this passage exposes Peter. Peter, the great apostle. Peter, the great follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing held back in Peter's life in this text. Everything is revealed. All of his denials, the whole scene, as we'll see, is unpacked in front of us. But one of the things I've learned to do when I study Peter's life in the Gospels, I go back and read his, his, uh, his epistle to the church. It's important to understand that this Peter... Repentant. This Peter changed and grew and loved the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen to what he wrote in the middle of his first letter. First Peter chapter 3, verse 15. He says, but sanctify Christ. That is, set Christ aside. Set him apart from everything else. But sanctify Christ as Lord, your master, in your heart. And then he says this. Now think about what you just heard, the passage we're going to study here in a moment. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is within you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Always be ready to give a defense of the hope that is within you. We're going to see in our text, Peter didn't do that. (laughs) But Christ forgave him, restored him, and gave him tremendous ministry. And so there are so many life lessons, life lessons as a Christian in this passage for us to learn from. Another quote I read this week by Dale Ralph Davis, he's a prophet, um, RTS in Jackson. He said this, he said, you should be terrified if you have the truth and yet the truth does not grip, control, and transform you. See, it'd be one thing if we read this and study this passage of Peter and he just, like Judas, hangs himself and walks away and has no change. Never gripped or controlled or transformed. That should be terrifying to us. To hear the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. To hear the gospel and yet no transformation ever takes place in our life. I love preaching behind baptisms. Because those young people, as God has been saving them and drawing them, their lives are transforming. They're becoming gripped with the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Peter had lived and, and really lived out the def- definition of denial, didn't he? And yet, he leaves us an example of what it means to come up against truth and fail. And so we want to look at that text and see what happens to him, and understand how we can grow in God's word today from his testimony. I want to look at several thoughts today. Number one, a a shadowy association with Christ. A shadowy association with Christ. Well, last week, last couple weeks, I have quoted Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, and there, uh, Jesus uses that 
passage and says, if you strike the shepherd, all will scatter. You remember that. And that's exactly what happened. The chief shepherd was struck in the garden and all 11 of his disciples scattered. Now, the words in that that prophecy of what was going to happen are important. The disciples did scatter, but they did not abandon. There's a very, very different, a huge difference there. Um, Judas abandoned it to himself to his flesh. He, all he was left was suicide and death, but not the disciples. And we know here, we've seen that, even last week's sermon and in today, clearly Peter followed from a distance. We'll see that John made his way into the courtyard. He had some relationship with the high priest family and was able to get in there. The other disciples quickly assembled after the death of Christ. Mary was sent to tell them that he's resurrected and he's going to meet you in Galilee. And they went there. So their act of assembling tells us that they were not scattered terribly far. Now, though they were greatly disturbed by the events of Christ, his arrest, his trial, and then his death, they never left the area. And I thought that was fascinating. But upon receiving the Holy Spirit, these men change miraculously. Christ comes and breathes the Spirit on them, and they are emboldened to stand for Christ like never before. And I want you to know that as we go into this passage. You can change. These men knew Christ. They knew him well, they walked with him for three years. And yet, there's a great denial here. But that's not the end of the story. Now, these circumstances would expose their, faith, their, their very fleshly weaknesses. This is what God puts us through. He puts us through challenges to show us that there's times we will rely on our flesh and we are tremendously weak. And we need God's word. We need the spirit of God active in our life And we desperately need a growing, gradual, closer relationship with our Lord and Savior. Now, we finished last week with Jesus being taken to Annas' house. And there he was on the first round of questioning. And Annas, he was the, the former high priest. He was the patriarch of this priestly family. So he sets the tone in the treatment for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we remember in that text, he, he beat him. He abused him. And then Caiaphas did the same. Well, it's important to note that according to the Old Testament, the high priest was to occupy his position for a lifetime. Now, during the days of Roman occupation, when they came and had Israel uh, as their captives, particularly during Herod's rule, they would not allow one man to have the authority. The high priest really was the ruler of Israel, Um, He was looked at that way, but he was not allowed uh, to have that way. So from Herod the Great to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD, there was at least 30 men, many of them, Annas' boys. Remember we said five of them had served in that position. So this office had great gain, great wealth, and they kept it in the family. They were not going to let that out. Now, as we approach the scene here at the end of Mark 14... It's not difficult to see this uh, quite a facility that Jesus has been brought into and Peter is coming into. This would have been a walled-in courtyard and houses. Uh, This would have belonged to this high priest family. It would have been well-groomed, well-taken-care-of. You could tell there was wealth there. 
The courtyard would have been a common area where houses would have been linked together by a courtyard where they would have fellowshiped in and hung out in the cool of the evenings and they would have been beautiful gardens and a place to gather with a fire pit in the middle of it. Doubtlessly, this courtyard was beautiful because they had servants that took care of it for them. And these servants were very, very close to them. They're in the garden at the arrest of the Lord Jesus Christ and now they're here in this uh, confronting of Peter. Now, Peter has already had a run-in with one of them. You remember that? The one disciple said, should we strike? And before the Lord could speak, Peter pulls out that sword and goes after Malchus's head and catches his ear, and Jesus, of course, has to heal that. So now this is going to be costly. This is going to be a problem. You've now messed with the servants of the high priest, and we'll see how this comes back. All four gospel accounts record Peter's denials and with a, a variety of details. And it's really fun to open up all four and read through them as you study. And I've enjoyed that this week. But Mark, Mark's account is extraordinarily vivid. Extraordinarily vivid. And I think that's because most likely we believe that Peter was preaching and Mark was recording much of what Peter said. And of course the Lord inspired that. And we now have the book of Mark from that. And so the gospel writers hide no details. They spare no, um, uh, no details to protect themselves. And I think as you look at this and you look at a close comparison of the harmony of the gospels, that's when we look at how they flow together, it shows that there were three distinct denials. Three distinct denials, just as Jesus said. And collectively, they describe Peter's struggle on that night. And he, he is charged and accused of his relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And at this gathering, these accounts paint a perfect picture of this very intense time in Peter's life. Now, Peter doubtlessly approached this courtyard, uh, most likely from the street side. And there would have been a gate and there would have been a porch over that gate. So when we see him retreat to the porch, he's moving his way back to the gate. There at the gate, there would have been a servant, someone who lets people in and out, who greets them. Often that servant would wash their feet. It was the lowest ranking position you would have. So if you went to work for Caiaphas and you started at the bottom, guess where you were? You were at the gate greeting people. And this is where the story begins. The Bible says in John chapter 18, verse 16, it tells us that John had somehow got into that courtyard. Um, John doesn't expose himself. He calls himself the beloved one or the one the, the master loved. And he says that, that he was able to get in. And, and many people believe he had some kind of relationship either with the high priest, either with Caiaphas' family, or with the servants. But some way, John is in there, and he's the one who lets Peter, or at least encourages this girl or whoever's at the gate to let Peter into the courtyard. But there's no recording of what happens to John that night. This is full attention on Peter, a strict focus on him. Look at verse 66 with me. Now, as Peter was below in the courtyard, now I'll just stop right there. You can kind of see the scene. I, I, I am a word picture guy. So you can see where he came in the gate and, and the gardens are lower and there's steps up to these houses and these houses are elevated and possibly several stories, maybe an upper room on top of them where they, they eat in the cool of the evenings. And all what's holding them together is this courtyard. There's a common area and there, Peter is making his way into that courtyard. 
And as we see later, Jesus could see this area while he was being abused. Notice the verse 66 goes on to say, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. So here's one of these female servants in the household of the high priest. She approaches Peter. Remember back in previous verses, we saw that when he came in, he came to the fire there to warm himself by the fire. So now this fire is illuminating his face and he's now able to be recognized. And it's quite possible from the other accounts that it is the same person who let Peter in the gate. Quite possibly, she had left that gate to come over. Maybe she saw something. She was suspicious or curious when he came through the gate. So she comes to get a closer look. The fire now is illuminating Peter's face and the tension is building. Look at verse 67. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with Jesus the Nazarene. Now, she knows that Peter was a stranger. She's, she's attending that gate. She, she has a good idea who everybody is coming in. The temple police are there. The Sanhedrin, these 70 men have made their way in. They're there. They, she had seen Jesus come in bound uh, with the temple police and others that were sent there. She knows he does not fit in this scene. But upon closer examination, she recalls having previously seen him before. Notice she says, you also were with Jesus the Nazarene. Well, the you is emphatic here in the Greek. She is making a clear charge here. She's confronting Peter directly. Uh, You could, the little phrase says, you also, and and possibly she had known John was in there. You also were with Jesus. That's an interesting statement. And maybe, maybe quite possibly, this is the time, and some theologians believe this, that John exited (laughs) Because we don't see him anymore. You also, hmm, John, you, you also were with Jesus in Nazarene. And she begins to put a charge to him. In fact, this emphatic charge is made, and he uses the term the Nazarene. Notice that in the text, the Nazarene. It carries a very contemptuous uh, tone to it. She had been hanging around, remember, she's She's doubtlessly not a Jew. She's a servant girl. Uh, Jews could not have Jews as servants or slaves. So she was from somewhere else. And she was purchased and, and became a slave or a servant of Caiaphas and the high priest's family. But she had probably picked up this tone about Nazarenes and Galileans. Uh, the Jews in Jerusalem looked down on them. They saw themselves as much better than those who lived in Galilee. Even when Jesus was selecting his disciples, remember Philip brings Nathaniel to Jesus and says, hey, you gotta meet this guy. He's, this might be the Messiah. You need to come and hear him. And then he tells Nathaniel in chap, chapter one of 46, uh, verse 46 of John says, um, come and see him. And Nathaniel says, could anything good come of what? Uh, from Nazareth. And then later on, Jesus' ministry is uh, really blossoming. He's doing incredible works. He's preaching. And people begin to say in, in John seven forty one, is this the Christ? And then the Bible says this, and still others say, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee. So you can see there was, there was a, uh, that's kind of a hicks out there. You know, he lived out in Pearson. You were out somewhere else, somewhere else. Sorry, Jeff. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, you, you were not part of the mainstream, right? You're looked down on those type of things. Now, most likely, the servant girl had picked up this tone of negative, negativity from her masters. But notice the term Jesus and Nazarene. And doubtlessly, she had seen, seen Jesus. And she saw him brought in. And 
and knew he was being tried. And, and most importantly, her charges were to identify the relationship with Jesus. And when she says Jesus the Nazarene, she, you can make no other mistake. She knows she's connecting Peter with that. But look what happens. Peter's going to slink away. She has charged him to identify himself. She's charged him to identify his relationship with Jesus. And she's going to start to move. And notice that he moves to the shadows. And that's quite interesting, isn't it? I wrote in my notes, I said, are we in the shadows when it comes to associating with Jesus Christ? Mm. Do I want to be connected with him? Do I want to be connected with Christianity? Maybe on Sunday and, and maybe even on Wednesday if I go to church on Wednesday. But I don't know that I really want to be connected. And here you begin to watch Peter in his flesh. Self-protection, self-preservation begin to move to the shadows. Second thought. Two, responding to the charge of knowing Christ. Responding to the charge of knowing Christ. Look at verse 68. Right off the bat it says, but he denied it. And possibly this unexpected, as well as this public setting. Remember he's got temple police sitting around him. Peter seems almost to be caught off guard and he panics at the exposure. And he denies it, just flows out of his mouth. Matthew 26, 70, um, the parallel text by um, Matthew says, but he denied it, then it says this, before them all. He made sure that all that were there, at least hearing the charge, knew that he was not associated with Jesus. In fact, Matthew says, uh, records a quote, I do not know what you are talking about. Now, just hours before this, remember Peter's in the garden. Um, they're getting ready to pray. Jesus says, pray lest you fall into temptation and, and, and you fall into sin. Pray. Um, and he had told them that he was going to suffer and die. And Peter makes this bold confession. Not, never, not on my watch. I will not let you. I will die with you. Remember all this great, great confession he made. Just hours before, but listen, now fear causes a very different result. And fear now brings about a different confession, a very different confession. Listen, brothers and sisters, Paul was very clear when he told Timothy, God did not give us the spirit of fear. Fear is from Satan. Fear is from the result of sin. We must be careful of that. It doesn't mean we don't, use wisdom and discernment you've heard me say this many times over the last few months but we don't live in fear hebrews chapter 2 says because of christ's death because he came and added flesh to himself and became like one of the brethren and died for us he robbed satan of fear in our cases he took fear of death away from him fear is a, a terrible thing and it and to live in fear uh, keeps you captive You've heard me say quotes of other people that said, once they know what you're afraid of, they now control you. So fear drives a man to do things he once confessed he wouldn't. And that's where Peter finds himself. Notice his statement. It's very important. He says, I neither know, I'm in verse 68, nor understand what you are talking about. Well, Peter uses two verbs here, back to back, that emphasizes denial of what the servant girl was charging him with. I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. See, Peter had, had single, he had been singled out here, and he had, he had a choice to make. 
stand with Jesus, the Nazarene, or deny her claims? One of the two. He's up against it. And Peter, have, Peter may have thought that he was, well, I'm rejecting this little girl. I'm rejecting this servant girl. She's a nobody. She's just a servant. I'm, I, I don't need to be charged by her. And, and maybe trying to dismiss her claim of ignorance, that he didn't understand what she was talking about. He may have taken that track if further question, but in all reality, this is his first denial of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 68 also, he went out to the porch. Well, this exposure at the fireplace, at this pit where his face was illuminated, became very uncomfortable, didn't it? So he moves back into the shadows of the entranceway of the porch, trying to get out of the illumination. There's much ruckus going on. There's much talk on the courtyard. Jesus is being condemned and tried illegally in a nighttime court. He's down amongst us. And so he moves closer probably to the street where the entrance is and hides in the shadows. Listen, for Christians, there's a sense of shame when we don't stand for Jesus. I think most of us who have missed opportunities to speak for Christ feel a bit shameful at times. I hope you do. <laughs> it's probably a good thing when it comes to that. Or maybe you've had a discussion with somebody. Instead of turning it towards the gospel, you got in an argument with them. And you began to twist and turn and push it back on them instead of saying, hey, you know, you're right. Uh, I need to humble myself to you, but I need to tell you why uh, I believe Jesus died for me. And you have this opportunity to share the gospel, but instead you, you, you straighten up and stiffen your back and put your heels into the ground and defend yourself. See, the shame that comes with that as Christians, we go, well, that's not how God saved us. God saved us to stand for him. And look, there's many situations that are costly. I've had many men and women through the years tell me, well, pastor, that was a great sermon, but you know, I work here and I can't do that, I'll be fired, and so forth and so forth. And, and look, I, I understand the intensity of some places where some of you all work. But there's always an opportunity to speak for Christ. And, and really, when you say that, you're denying that he can protect you. But he also gives you wisdom and discernment. Hey, friend, could we meet at lunch and talk, you know? Or, hey, can we uh, afterwards go and get a Coke together and talk about one of the questions you have? There's opportunities, but shame and fear often make us run from those conversations. Oh, brother and sister, if God gives you the opportunity, speak for him. Some of your Bibles say, and a rooster crowed uh, here at the end of verse 68 it's probably not in some of the better manuscripts that phrase right there and might have been added by a scribe. But, but verse 72 clarifies that there were two crows of the rooster, right? And so we know that's probably in what happened at this point. One of the roosters crowed. And, crowed and, and you think about this, this audible sound of this pesky rooster that's crowing before it's actually light. Anybody have those roosters? Um, they, I don't know why they do that, but um, you know, it's not even two hours, but they do. But this pesky rooster's crowing before dawn is actually there in Peter's disturbed mind because he's in self-protection mode does not catch the grace of God. <laughs> you go, well, a rooster is the grace of God? God is incredibly creative to remind you of who he is. <laughs> and here it's a rooster. Peter, don't deny me. But when you're so consumed, when you're so consumed with self-protection, if you've gone in this self-preservation mode, you will miss the grace of God warning you of events. 
So often, brothers and sisters, we will make sinful, selfish decisions and we will go right through a stop sign. We know what God's word says. We're not ignorant of it. We know the Bible says this and we go right through it. You Hollywood stop it, we call it. And then you find yourself in trouble. You find yourself losing your joy of your salvation. And you know what? That road leads to another one. And we're going to see that with Peter. Because he doesn't stop here, he goes on further into more difficult situations and fails in greater ways. Oh, friend, please heed the warning of the word of God. Know what the Bible says. Know what's right and wrong according to God's word. Know what glorifies him and what is sinful. Know those things. Ask the spirit of God to be sharp. Study the word. Pray. Know those things. So when those events come, you go, oh, I don't want to run through this. Lord, help me. Strengthen me. Notice verse 69 that Peter spotted again. The servant girl saw him. The definite article means that it's entirely possible that's the same girl. She has moved away from the fire. He's moved maybe closer to the, the door under the porch there. But the problem was, most likely, this girl was the one keeping watch of the door. And so she had left the door to come over and say, aren't you, aren't you one of them? And Peter, trying to slink back, he denies the Lord Jesus Christ, slinks back into the shadows, and guess where she returns? Back to where her position is. And now he's confronted by her again. And Peter is in a problem. John 18, 26 says that one of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? So here, either her or another relative comes along in this situation. And and now you have a family issue, right? Wait a minute. Aren't you the guy swinging the sword in the garden that tried to take off the head of my relative? Peter's slinking deeper into the shadows. Instead of confessing and repenting and trusting God would take him through that, his denials begin. Look at what he says. And he began once more to say to the bystanders, this is one of them. And, and so instead of repenting, now he, he is backed up, and they began to notice, even bystanders are coming in, this, and they're saying this is one of them. So this little chatty servant girl, she sees him, brings attention to him, and now they begin to mark him as one who walks with the Lord Jesus Christ. There are many who say, oh, there's so many inconsistencies, there's so many different people here. Is it the servant girl, is it somebody else? I think what the Bible teaches us is there's all kinds of people start to identify Peter. Matthew chapter 26, verse 71 says that another servant spoke up. Luke twenty two fifty eight says another man mentioned it. So clearly there's several joining in at this challenge of who Peter is and is he associated with the Lord Jesus Christ. Look, they are trying to root him out. If you're with Jesus, we want to know. Hmm, could that happen here someday? Right now they're not busting in the doors yet, but they could someday. Are you folks with Riverbend? Are you folks, the people who believe that salvation is only through Jesus Christ, everybody else goes to hell if you don't come through Christ alone? That's already happened. The whole Reformation was about that. Are you the ones that hold to marriage is only between a man and a woman? Are you the ones that hold to that life is God-ordained and should not ever be killed in the womb? They'll be identifying us. And that's, that's where it comes down to where the power of peer pressure, will you stand for the Lord? I had a great time at camp with the kids this year. 
And uh, one of the things I noticed that our kids are not, uh, at least that group that was there, were not kids that are just pushed around terribly easy. In fact, kids, I would tell you that I was impressed with you. Instead of maybe uh, always feeling like you're under peer pressure, turn it around. Maybe sit at the table one day and say, hey, Dad, do you get to share Christ at work? Because remember, your parents are always on you. Hey, Sean, I want you to do well at you know, school. And, and uh, our daughter, I want you to share Christ with him. Ask them. These are great opportunities. Time is, is short. The Bible says the night is, the night is coming. Day is short and the night is coming. Our Lord is going to return. When you study your Bible, it always talks that Jesus Christ is coming soon. In fact, some of the writers pray it. Maranatha, come soon, Lord Jesus. And so, do we allow that? I think sometimes as parents, we're always after our children. Hey, you need to stand for Christ. You need to do this, you know. And they're in they're incredible situations. What about, hey, kids? Sit down at the table and say, hey, mom, dad. How are you sharing Christ? How are we doing as a family? Third thought. The condemning denial of knowing Christ. The condemning denial of knowing Christ. Look at verse 70 with me. But again, he denied it. We'll just stop right there. Uh, this is an interesting verb here, and it, it carries the idea that he is not just one time repeating this. He is expressing over and over a denial that he has anything to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice this, the adverb that's in there, but again he denied it. This denotes that shameful repetition of denial. And so the first denial was kind of a sly, backhanded denial of Jesus, kind of blowing off this servant girl here. But this time it is an outright denial of Jesus by claiming he is not one of his followers. It would be like this. If somebody comes to you, you would say, I am not a Christian. And you just flat out lie. Because that's what a Christian is, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. But this time, this denial was strong. In other words, I want you to think about this. The, the, the question was, the servants, because you are one of them. Remember that in verse 69? So he not only separates us from Jesus, himself from Jesus, but he's separating himself from what? The disciples. You're one of them. No, I'm not. I am not a follower of Jesus, and I'm not a disciple. That's what this Christian is saying here in, in many ways. Look at verse 70 again. And after a little while, the, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. Luke here records and helps us get a little mindset around this, says that there was an hour between the second and third denial. I want you to realize this, when we read the narrative, sometimes you go along pretty quickly and you think things are happening quickly, but this is over a, a couple hours span. Remember, Jesus is arrested somewhere around midnight. He's brought in, he's going through trials with Annas, then trials with uh, Caiaphas, the whole Sanhedrin. Seventy men are assembled to accuse him. All this is taking place. This is happening. Peter is getting charged at things and he's slinking away and think he thinks he's moving away from everybody. And over time, somebody figures it out and, and now he's charged again and so forth. So this is over a span of a couple hours that this is happening. And you know what this tells me? He has time to think about it. And he still denies. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, there's times we know what to do, but we do not do it to us. To that it is sin, James says. And here, these bystanders have doubtlessly been 
discussing Peter's relationship with Jesus and the other disciples, right? There's time, there's this hour that's gone by, and they're, maybe they're arguing, I think he's, I think he's one of the 12, or, or we've seen him with Jesus, and the discussion is growing, right? And Peter now left the porch because he got identified there, and he's now buried himself into the crowd, but the jig is up. They now know who he is. And their curiosity is moving, and it's moving rapidly to, di- to discover who he is. Notice the term just surely. They say, surely you are one of them. Th- this reflects the people's insisting that Peter was a disciple of Christ. You can't deny it. You were. You were a, you're a well-known leader. Peter was known for that. It didn't take long for them to identify that Jesus had an inner circle, Peter, James, and John. They knew Peter was an outspoken member of the Lord Jesus Christ. But his denials are are making them even more suspicious. Look, you lie long enough, people are going to catch on to it. Unsaved people. God certainly knows when we lie, right? But you keep lying, and even unsaved people go, that's a lie. And it discredits who you are. Now, notice that he says, for you are a Galilean. For you are a Galilean too. Well, the conjunction could actually read this way. You could write it in the Greek. You could say, for you are also a Galilean. Now, what they're meaning by that is, not only have we seen you with Jesus, and, and not only are you a leader of his disciples, but you were in the garden tonight, and on top of that, your speech tells us something different. You're a Galilean. Now, moving from California, there's not a lot, I guess we don't, do we think we have accents? We don't. We come back here and everybody has an accent. And, you know, some of you, I can tell you're from Georgia. Um, I can now, now starting to tell North Carolinians, Car- Carolinians, they're a little different. And you, you, you New, uh, New Yorkers, you can never hide. I mean, we know who you guys are. Um, so, so your speech gives you away, right? Um, and, and they know this about him, right? And, of course, Nazareth was in Galilee. So, they're, so they, they're connecting this all together. They're connecting him as this leader, being in the garden, chopping the ear off of Malachus's head. Your speech is now betraying you. And so everything's pointing, just confess and repent, Peter, and trust God. But that's not what happens. Look at verse 70. And he began to curse and swear. Hmm. Things are really coming off the rails now. The lie has gone bigger, the denial is greater, and Peter's lost control of things. That's what sin does. Sin just takes things right out of your control after a while. Well, you, you may think you can sin and get away and you got control on things. You just let sin go for a little while. It'll have you so out of control, it'll make your head spin. Sin wants to destroy you, wants to break everything in your life. That's why Jesus came to die. And so he's at a point where it's off the rails. He be, the Bible says he began this, this is an interesting word order here in the original language, but it's an idea to say that this is, was an ongoing verbal effort trying to convince them over and over. And then he uses the word curse. Do you know what Greek word that is? You're gonna know this word, actually. You think, well, curse, maybe it's a swear word or something like that. It's anathema. Peter uses the word anathema. It, it, it doesn't mean foul language here. It means to call down the curses of God upon himself and be eternally damned if he's not telling the truth. He's got to the point where he says, Lord, kill me and condemn me if I'm not saying the truth. This is strong language, brothers and sisters. This is where sin leads you. Now, it wasn't uncommon for Jews 
to get emotionally charged and start calling down curses. They, they do that. They did that. We have an account of that in Acts chapter 23 when they want to kill the Apostle Paul. Remember, there's a group of, of Jewish leaders who hated Christ and now are trying to kill off the apostles. They took an oath. It's the same word, anathema. They took an oath. We will not eat or drink till Paul is dead, till we kill Paul. So they, they do this. But, but James reminds the early church, he says in five, James chapter 5, verse 12, he says, but, above, excuse me, but above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under judgment. So this is, this is in their culture, to call this down, but not of a follower of Christ. Not of a follower of Christ. And Peter is in trouble. And if that's not enough, notice what he does. He begins to swear. Now again, this is not curse words. It has the idea of taking an oath in the court of law. And here's his statement. Notice you see it here in verse 71. Get the idea. It's a court, kind of a court type statement. Hand on the Old Testament, right hand up. I do not know this man you are talking about. It's right there. He, He makes a, an oath calls curses down. May God eternally damn me. May he put his judgment on me forever. And I will take an oath that I do not know this man. How can you get there? How can you get there? I promise you, brothers and sisters in this room or those hearing my voice by the live stream, if you do not repent of sin, you will get there. It'll take you where you do not want to go. And you'll deny the one that you know dies for you. So while cursing and swearing as God as his witness to the truth of his claim, Peter combines his broken promise to God. Remember, I'll never leave you, Jesus. A conscience lie. He knew he was lying. in a personal disloyalty to Jesus in his third denial. This is a depth. This is the depth of a reckless, unrepentant heart. It's falsehood and it's unfaithfulness. And that's what happens to us when we don't repent. And and I would say this, the act of unfaithfulness in the courtyard below where Jesus is being abused is even more magnified, isn't it? Right up there, right up somewhere, we're gonna see here in a moment where Jesus sees Peter. Um, He's going through that, he's... uh, Psalms 53, he's being abused and struck for our iniquities. He's right there. Fourth, the time to wake up and repent is now, believers. The time to wake up and repent is now. Look at verse 72, the final verse here. Immediately a rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remarks to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. Well, immediately crowing, immediately the crowing of the rooster is recorded in all the Gospels. Luke 22, verse 60 adds this. It said, while Peter was still speaking his denial, the rooster was crowing. And only Mark records the second crow. But I want you to think about this. It says that Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times This time, at the sound of the rooster, Peter's mind awakes. 
and it stirs this, these vivid words of Jesus and this warning that was given just hours beforehand. And then Luke chapter 22, and this is the verse I was just talking about, Luke twenty two sixty one records that as those words fell out of his mouth and as that rooster crowed somewhere on some dark street out there, he looks up and Jesus is looking at him. I'll read you the verse. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told them before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Think about the combination of a crowing rooster, a remembrance of the Lord's warning, and the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, probably bloody and spit upon. Here's Peter now looking at his Savior, looking at the one who's going to die from him, and his conscience is lit up. And he repents. He repents. This is one of the most humbling verses because that, that weeping there is not to be overlooked. This, this shows Peter breaking. It's so much different than, than Judas. He began to weep. The verse carries this idea of the thoughts were being cast on him. There's, there's a couple words in the Greek called ekbalo where you throw out something, but this is epibalo. I mean, something is thrown on top of you, and, and our English just doesn't do a good enough job here to try to bring forth some of these original languages. But all of those thoughts, all of those understandings, all of a sudden just piled on Peter, and he broke. He broke. Oh, friend, have you been there? A, a, every true Christian has been at a point after salvation where you have not lived for the Lord the way you should and you are awoken to that and it overwhelms you. And you are, you are there at the, uh, before the mercy of God and possibly even weeping or pleading with his forgiveness because all of a sudden you're aware of where, of, of where you've gotten to in your life. And this is what happened to Peter. I think there's only one verse that probably rivals this and helps highlight it as King David. David had taken Bathsheba and slept with her, killed her husband, lied to the nation. And in his confession, after the prophet Nathan exposes his sin, Psalms 51 records this, and he says in verse four, against you and you only have I sinned. And then listen to this phrase, because I want you to connect this to Peter as he sees Jesus and done what is evil in your sight. See, both these men, Peter and David, sinned at what we would call as people in the world, humans, a very high-level sin, denying of Jesus Christ, murder and adultery. I mean, it didn't get any worse than that in, in the tears of sin that man somehow stack up. But both of them confess you saw me. You saw me. And I look at this scene, and I, I tell you, brothers and sisters, as you study this stuff, it just kicks you around the office, doesn't it? And you go, Lord, everything I do, you see, and yet you do not strike me. We are so undeserving of his grace, aren't we? He sees all things. The Bible says he knows our thoughts before we think them. Nothing is hidden from his sight. All things, Hebrews chapter 4, are laid bare before him. We are filleted in a sense. He wide open everything that goes to our mind and our heart. Our Lord knows. The same Lord who hung on the cross for that sin. 
And brothers and sisters, that's the way we repent. That's what we do. We say, Lord, that lie, that immoral thought, whatever it was, that action I engaged in, you died for, that hung you on the cross. See, that's understanding. That's, that's repentance of turning away from that because Christ died for us. And that's what this man did. This whole scene ends with Peter departing the courtyard utterly distraught. The language is strong both here and in Luke. He weeps bitterly, Luke says. Broken over his sin. Crushed over what he did. Denying the Lord of glory. Denying the one he saw raise the dead. Feed feed the hungry. Heal the sick. He's distraught. And Lord, sometimes that's what we need. We need to be distraught over our sins. See, it is a mark of a genuine believer. We don't get comfortable with sin. We don't just go out and quit and hang ourselves and give up. We repent. That's what true believers do. Not pass it on to somebody else, blame it on somebody else. David could have said, well, all those years, God, I, you promised me I was going to be king. I ran around. Y'all chased me all over the place. It wasn't fair. You know, I just wanted a woman who would love me. Man, I've heard that too many times in my office. Not, not David. David says, my sin was against you, God, and you alone. I've lost the joy of my salvation. Will you give it back? Peter runs out and weeps bitterly. He knows, he knows Christ is the Messiah. He's going to see later that he dies on the cross, and, but Peter just drops out of the scene here. We won't see him until after the cru- crucifixion. But the shame of his predicted denials and his public implications are bad, right? They know who he is. There's only one thing that Peter has hope for, that Christ gets out of that grave. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus got out of that grave. And not only does Jesus forgive him, he restores him. John chapter 21, Jesus is walking along the shoreline. Peter and his other disciples and family are out fishing, and Peter, Jesus calls to him. And Peter, now repentive and confessing and desiring that relationship with the Lord Jesus, strips off and dives into the water and comes here. Christ already has a fire going with fish on there miraculously, and he begins to restore him. But one of the questions that he asked Peter, as the rest of the group got there and they're eating their breakfast, he says, do you love me more than these? In the garden, you did. You said, though all will deny you, all will forsake you, I will not, I will die for you. So Jesus says, is that still true? And Peter says, you know I love you, Lord. And the Lord restores him. Those three denials, the Lord restores him three times. Peter goes on to be the preacher of the beginning sermon of the church. He has a little stumble with Paul in Galatia. But then he's restored and he goes on to be a man who loves God. History tells us he dies upside down on a cross telling his wife to live for Christ. And he writes First and Second Peter, one of the most amazing books of suffering for the glory of Christ. God makes all things new, even, even a saved sinner's. My last thought here, just in closing, I want to just go through this real briefly. I wrote something here that I hope you can put in your Bible that maybe will help you. It, it's a stern, but I, I think it might help some of us who may struggle with pride. 
Number five, pride is an enemy of God. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 23. I remember my mentor working with me in prideful areas before I was ever allowed to preach or begin to go. And this verse was a great reminder. It said, a man's pride will bring him low. But a humble spirit will obtain honor. A man's pride will bring him low. I think... Peter, if he was here today, he would probably tell you, I was at the bottom of the bucket. If you found the bottom of the bucket, I was under that. That was a tough time for Peter. But pride led him there. Let me just give you five quick things. I just want you to have this. Pride draws the attention of Satan. Pride draws the attention of Satan. Listen, Satan is not omniscient. He is not omnipotent, and he is not omnipresent. And if he ever makes you think that, he's a liar and you believe something wrong. He is an angel. He's very limited. He's powerful, but he's very limited. But why he finds people, why why his gaze finds, is he finds people who are caught up in pride. You'll attract his attention right away. Peter's statement for dying for Jesus attracted Peter. In fact, Jesus said, Satan has asked to sift you. Pride will draw the attention of Satan. Listen, true a mature believer in here. Let me talk to you for just a moment. You've been in the faith a long time. You've attended Riverbend or another Bible teaching church for a long time. Be careful, brother or sister. We have now biblical knowledge. And that can become a problem when we're not mixed with humility. We can be arrogant and look down on others and not care to disciple them but just condemn them for something. Be careful. Pride brings the gaze of Satan. And he loved to break up unity in church. He loved to have uh, two different groups running around in a church and, and not caring for one another and loving with one another. Oh, be careful. Be careful of boasting. Give him the glory in everything. B, pride fails to heed the word of God. Christ's words were God's words, and Peter did not listen intently to the truth. In fact, in Matthew chapter 16, he rebuked Jesus. The Bible says that he rebuked him, meaning he tried to expose error in Jesus. You remember what happened. He got called Satan himself, right? Get behind me, Satan. He wouldn't listen to the word of God. He says, you're thinking like a man. You're not thinking like God. We are to listen to the word of God. Hey, brothers and sisters, God is speaking right here on your couch before you leave for work in your truck at noontime, on your break, he's speaking. This is his word. You don't have to try to figure out, well, was that him talking to me? I don't know if that was. No, maybe somebody needs to tell me. No, his word tells us he speaks to us right through the Bible. Doesn't have to be interpreted and gone through all these crazy things some of our friends get into. God speaks, listen to it. He speaks now. Pride will come when we don't heed the word of God. See, pride is a faithless prayer partner. Pride is a faithless prayer partner. Peter was warned to pray lest he fall into temptation. Pride tells you to go it alone. Pride centers on what we need. (laughs) And let me put it this way. Um, Many of us won't read our Bible because we're too tired in the morning. So we sleep and sleep till the last moment, and then we get up and we grab a cup of coffee and rush off in their vehicle to try to get to work on time, and we don't spend time with God. We don't pray. And I, I wrote this, I said, pride is a faithless prayer partner because it doesn't want you to pray. 
Pride wants you to go it alone. Pride wants you to solo bootstrap this, pull yourself up, take care of this your own, be a man. That's what pride does. And look, not only does pride love physical sleep where you don't get up and spend time with the Lord either before you go to bed or after or sometime during the day where you read God's word and hear him speak to you, it also loves spiritual slumber. It's probably the biggest danger to Christians today. We spiritually sleep. We allow sermons to be our only influence on us. There's a lot of pressure on a pastor. This is the only time you're going to hear the word of God all week long. You're never going to crack your Bible yourself. You're never going to study God's word on your own. You're in trouble. Because I am just a human agent. God wants you in the word. Don't be spiritually asleep. D, pride rejects the sovereignty of God. See, pride doesn't wait for God. Like Peter in the garden. One disciple says, should we strike now? Peter has no inclination to wait for Jesus. Boom, out it comes and off goes the ear of Malchus. See, pride rejects the sovereignty of God. It doesn't believe that God can take care of the situation. God's not watching. God's not in this. I'm going to have to do this myself. He doesn't care about my finances. He doesn't care about my marriage. He doesn't care about that I'm married to this man or this woman, how difficult it is. He doesn't care. And so we try to fix things ourselves. And we don't trust the sovereignty of God. Pride overreacts and then creates the next problem and the next problem while it doesn't trust God and creates a path of destruction until repent. And then finally, pride excels in self-preservation. Pride excels in self-preservation. Pride won't, get, won't let you get too close to exposure. Oh man, I don't want to get into some kind of discipleship group. I don't want to meet with that guy that's been calling me to have breakfast with him and go through the word together. I, I, I don't need that kind of exposure. I don't want to get into that Bible study with ladies or join a DTP class or go through partners or go to counseling with somebody because I, I, I just don't need that. I don't want this exposed. And yet what you probably need is somebody who loves you, who's intently involved in your life to help you grow. See, pride won't let you do that. Faithfulness and loyalty are no match for unrepentant pride. You can say, well, I'm faithful, I go to church. It will not match your pride. It just won't. And so we'll hide in the shadows while others suffer. Look, Peter fell because of his pride. He didn't listen He didn't pray. He didn't read. And I I know this is a powerful, (laughs) I I hope you got hit as hard as I got hit this week. The Lord breaks our hearts, doesn't he, through the word of God. But Jesus got out of that grave. And he forgives us. And if you're here today and God has convicted you through the word of God that you have areas in your life, I would encourage you to take a moment and repent. Repent. Tell the Lord you caused his death and tell him what you've done. He loves you. If you're truly his son or daughter, he will restore you and you'll walk with joy again like King David, like Peter. And he'll use you to do things you never thought possible because of your sin. He'll use you for his glory. Father, we've had a great day, Lord. We've watched these beautiful young people that you've drawn to yourself give testimony before us 
that you save. We were told over and over they could not save themselves. They were totally dependent upon you. And then, Lord, we lifted up our voices and sang in one accord of the greatness of God and how you arrested death, Lord, and took over that for us and took it away and all the penalty with it. And then, Lord, we've turned to the passage of, in the Scriptures that reminds us that even people who walk with Jesus will deny him. And we can fall into deep sin at times, Lord, because of our pride. And yet... There is repentance. And God grants repentance to his children. We don't have to run out and hang ourselves. We don't have to run out and do penance. Try to earn our way back into your favor, Lord. We just simply repent in our hearts. And you restore us, Lord. We thank you for that kind of relationship, Lord. We, we don't know those type of relationships. We often make each other earn our relationships. But not you, God. Not you. You are a God of grace and mercy with nail-scarred hands held out to us, longing for your children to climb into your lap and have an Abba Father relationship. So, Lord, I pray, Lord, if there are sin in any of our hearts in this room, mine included, expose that and cause us to repent. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd ask you to stand with me for a closing benediction. As you stand there before I read this benediction I wrote, I want to give you 30 seconds. 30 seconds between you and God. Is there something you need to talk to him about before I read this? May God bless us and keep us and cause us to repent of sin. May his glory awaken us when our pride lulls us into spiritual sleep. May his beauty and suffering bring both tears and joy as he restores to us the right to serve him. May we continue now to grow in his grace and knowledge. Amen.